The word of God from Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The word of the Lord. It is great to be back with the wonderful people here at CRPC. And honestly, I say that with a bit of trepidation because the last time I preached here, shortly thereafter, I almost died. But I know that uh, correlation is not causation. And so I'm fairly certain that filling in for Matt Purdy is not life-threatening. So I'm back. And this, this morning I'm sharing with you from Romans 8.28. And it's a very familiar passage, as Matt said. And I know it's one that Matt, in recent months, has covered with you. So I know it was covered well because I don't know anyone more faithful with the scriptures than Matt. But transparently, when preachers preach on short notice, they tend to speak from favorite and familiar passages. When I'm asked to preach on short notice, there's a high percentage of probability that I'm going to preach from 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Because I know in every church there is someone, more than someone, struggling with worry. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because people always need to be reminded how the gospel works. Martin Luther said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. So preachers need to teach on familiar texts because they convey great truths and our hearts need to be reminded that those truths are actually true. Now, my father-in-law was a classic Southern lawyer and legislator. And down in southwestern Virginia, in his district, if you're familiar with Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, he was the Atticus Finch of his district. And he had a thousand experiences and 10,000 stories to tell about those experiences, some of which were astonishing. And when he told you one of those astonishing stories, he would always end it with the phrase, now they tell that for the truth. Let me give you some context for that. This week... One of my Ligonier colleagues told me that one of our Ligonier teaching fellows 
by which I mean one of the premier primary speakers for Ligonier, one of the people that this week in Orlando at the National Conference will be a keynote speaker, that one of them was actually one of the five original Backstreet Boys. Now, I've never heard the phrase Ligonier Teaching Fellow and Backstreet Boys in the same month, let alone in the same context about the same person. So I said, is that story for real? And he showed me the link on the Ligonier webpage that testifies to that fact. So at Ligonier Ministries, when someone tells you that Burke Parsons was one of the five original Backstreet Boys, they tell that for the truth. But more importantly, when Scripture tells you that God will provide for every care that you have, God tells that for the truth. When Scripture tells you that through faith in God's one and only Son, you will have eternal life, God tells that for the truth. And when he tells you that he is working all things together for your good, your Heavenly Father tells that for the truth. But despite that reality, in the busyness and in the trials of life, we tend to forget that truth. So let's review it this morning. The first point in the outline in your bulletin, Paul states, we know. We know. Know is one of three one-syllable words we're about to discuss. To know. We recognize. We understand. We acknowledge the validity of this fact, and we embrace it deeply and fully. That's what know means. If I pick up one of those Trinity hymnals and toss it in the air, what do I know? I know it's coming back down because gravity exists. I know in the United States today, there are 50 states that make up our union. I know George Washington was the first president. There are things that we know. Now, earlier this week, millions of Americans filled out their March Madness bracket. And when they did that, they knew Purdue would defeat Fairleigh Dickinson University. The team, the shortest team in the entire tournament. Purdue had Zach Eady, 7-4 monster. Of course, that number one seed is going to defeat Fairleigh Dickinson. These same people knew that Arizona, former national champion, would defeat Princeton. Sometimes people know things, but that knowledge is only a projection. 
Other times, that knowledge is fact. And Paul is saying, we know, as in, this is fact, that we can and must deeply and fully embrace. We don't project God will work in all things for good. We know it. There is no room for wondering with God about this. We know it. And to paraphrase Francis Bacon, that knowledge is powerful. Two quick things that knowledge should empower. One of which Matt suggested we pray to grow in, and that is gratitude. The Westminster Confession of Faith reminds us that God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest to the least by his most wise and holy providence. The Apostle James reminds us in James 1.17 that all good and perfect gifts come from our Heavenly Father. Think for a second now, will you? What are you currently most grateful for in your life? What do you consider your greatest gift? What brings you pleasure? Just to ponder it. That very good thing in your life is the result of your Heavenly Father, the great creator of all things, governing the entire universe in such a way as to enable your possession of it. Even the smaller gifts, from the greatest to the least, even the simple pleasures of your life, the great creator has directed, disposed, governed all things to ensure your experience of those simple pleasures. As John Piper has said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. But in those 10,000 things, God is ensuring your greatest gifts and your simplest pleasures. Believers can know that. Paul tells that for the truth. And our response to that reality should be like the response of the psalmist in Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous work. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. First Chronicles 16.34 reminds us. So this knowledge should always empower gratitude. The second thing is it should always empower perseverance. There are some people 
when they begin to read a new book, they turn to the very end of that book to see how it ends to determine if they want to read it. I often wish I could do that with sporting events. I wish I knew how this game was going to conclude so I know if I want to invest two or three and a half hours in this game because I don't want to give all that energy to a loss. Believers have the opportunity to turn to the last chapter. We can turn to the book of Revelation. And a summation of that book is this. God wins. He has called you according to his purpose, and he is victorious in that purpose. In Christ, we are on the winning side. And everything that happens to you is both for your good and is a part of that victory. Paul shares with us in 2 Corinthians 4 both sides of this. We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for internal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Semi-theologian Freddie Mercury used to sing, We are the champions of the world. But ultimately, it is the church of Jesus Christ who can make that claim. Those called according to his purpose, because we are in Christ, and Jesus Christ is the champion of eternity. You are on the winning side, so persevere on the path of your great champion, because it is always the path of victory. Second point in your outline. Second small one-syllable word. All. Another tiny word, colossal in its reach. All is the whole quantity of something. All is comprehensive, limitless, boundless. It's a totally consuming term. More than once, I've heard a politician categorically deny something. What they mean by that is, I didn't have anything to do with anything to do with any of that. What Paul's saying here is Paul categorically affirms God has everything to do with all the things of your life. God is not just at work with what you understand. He's at work in what you don't understand. He's not just in work in the things that we find to be fair. He's in work with the things that we don't understand and consider unfair. He's not just at work in the things that are easy, 
but in the things that are hard. He's not just at work in the things that are joyful, but in the things that are tragic. He's not just at work in your successes. He's at work in your failures. Not just in the side of your life that makes complete sense, but in the side of your life that makes no sense. God is working in all those things for good. Back to the Apostle James. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God is using all those things for good. So that you will be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. So as we cancel ourselves with that truth, we can count all those things with joy. Now, just a reminder, clarification. The text does not say all things are good. This is not a denial of reality. Pain is pain. Frustration is frustration. Tragedy is tragedy. Rejection is rejection. Humiliation is humiliation. Bad is bad, but God is good. And his promise is to synergize and orchestrate everything in your life into tremendous good. I was talking to Matt before the service today about college trip they just went on. And that reminded me a couple years ago when I applied to college. And uh, I was certain, absolutely certain, that there were three schools I had to go to. I got rejected by two of them. I got put on the waiting list at the third, so I went to number four. And for the rest of my life, I have known that my number four was God's number one. Because so many things in my life are only possible because I went to that place. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And those steps are always good. Now, good is another one-syllable word we cannot undervalue. When you ask somebody nowadays how they're doing, very often you'll get... Oh, good. And you sort of get this connotation of mediocrity with the use of that word. But when God declares something good, there is a declaration of perfection. Think about, think about the dish, the specialty 
your mother used to make. And when you took a bite, you were like, oh, that's good. That's the kind of good we're talking about here. God is working in all things for a state of excellence beyond our ability to perceive. As Paul says in Ephesians 3.20, he is doing far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. What is your life's trial at the moment? What is your frustration? What is your rejection? What is your hardship? What is your humiliation? What is your pain? Will you trust that to the God who at this very moment is working with it for a good beyond what you are able to conceive? That is in fact exactly what God is doing right now. Trust him with that good purpose. Now, on a personal note, let me assure you that this is not just theological theory for me. This is truth that God has reminded me of for several months. Last July, I suddenly could not breathe when I just walked across the room. When I walked up the 15 stairs in our house, I felt like my heart was about to explode. Unbeknownst to me, my system internally was exploding with blood clots, and they were everywhere. And my pulmonary system was just completely overwhelmed. The proportions of my heart had reversed. Normally, the right side of your heart is the bigger side. The left side is the smaller side. My left side had become bigger than my right side because it was working so hard to try to get blood through my system. So I got to ride in an ambulance... I had a seven-hour procedure, several days in the ICU at West Shore, and that stabilized me. And then, a couple of weeks later, I experienced a second-order of effect of all that, and I got double vision. And I dealt with that for months until it became a non-factor. Throughout this whole experience, God has remarkably displayed his kind providences in ways that have amazed me, humbled me in his kindness. Then two weeks ago, the double vision came back, just out of the blue. That's why when Matt asked me to preach the first time, I said no. Man, I, I don't know how, that's, how that would work. One thing I do know is there'll be twice as many people here this morning, but, uh, but the uh, op- ophthalmologist was able to give me a prism to put on the lens, so that's why a week later, and he asked me again, I said I would come. I don't know what God's intent is, 
But I know I can trust Him. And that when one day He shows me all that He has been up to, it will only be good. That's who He is. What's troubling you today? Whatever it is, God is working with it right now for your good. Paul tells that for the truth. Now it's important to remember that the good that God is working is sometimes massively larger than us or our present circumstances. Massively larger in potential. I went to a prep school here in Pennsylvania and on the wall in the chapel is a memorial plaque for a graduate whose name was William Whiting Borden. And Bill Borden, he came from one of the wealthiest families in the country. He was a young believer, having come to faith in Christ under the preaching of R.A. Torrey at the Moody Church in Chicago, which is where he was from. He graduated from that school. He went on to Yale. Then he went to Princeton Theological Seminary. J. Gresham Machen was one of his professors. He was remarkable academically, and his faculty noted he was even more remarkable spiritually. And after seminary, he committed himself to go to China with China Inland Mission, which was the missionary organization that Hudson Taylor founded. His outreach was to be in the west of China to Chinese Muslims, people we hear of today called Uyghurs. People are greatly persecuted by the communists. So with that target audience, he en route, he stopped in Egypt to learn more about Islam and to study Arabic. And shortly after he got there, this young man who had everything and who had so much promise and who was so deep in his faith contracted cerebral meningitis and he died. He's still buried in Cairo. But before he died, he wrote a will giving millions of dollars to Christian mission, largely to China Inland Mission. And it's hard to think, there are a lot of great missionary organizations, but it's hard to think of one that's been more impactful than China Inland Mission. That ministry has brought thousands, if not millions, to Christ. And Bill Borden died with no regrets because he knew he had invested his wealth and his life in the good God would do, which he would not see this side of the grave. You can tell how powerful the impact of that investment is by how deliberately the Chinese communists try to control it and persecute it. But they can't. And the Pew Research Center projects by the middle of this century, China will be the largest Christian country on earth. Think about 
the global repercussions of that. God works in all things, and the size of his work exceeds our existence and our imagination. Now, someone might be saying, Pete, I can see why God is working in something as big as China. But what about the small details of my life? The Gospel of Matthew speaks to that in chapter 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. The number of hairs on your head. Why is that in Scripture? It seems like a piece of trivia. And that's exactly the point. You have a God who believes no detail about you is trivial. Every detail of your life is important to Him. And He is working in every detail of your life for your good. Paul tells that for the truth. Third point. God is the one who is working. We could explore any number of God's attributes to explain why that's important. But ultimately, when we look to somebody for help and for hope, there's one thing we want to know. We want to know they will come through. Lamentations chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. His mercies are new every morning. That's a poetic way of saying God comes through every day. He's not going to come through a thousand times and not come through tomorrow. Tomorrow will bring new mercies. Now, in some churches, if I said right now, God is good, the whole church would repeat, all the time. And if I said all the time, the whole church would say, God is good. Now, I'm not suggesting you add that to the order of service here at CRPC. It's way too exuberant for Reformed Presbyterians. Okay? (laughs) What I am suggesting is that you add that to the things you tell yourself every morning. And there's a sense that that's what's happening here in Lamentations chapter 3. If we went back up to verse 16, it says this. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. 
My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. I've been in the ministry long enough to know that there is someone in here today that has forgotten what happiness is. That gives you a real glimpse why this book is called Lamentations. What changes? There's not a change in circumstances between these verses. What changes is a reminder that God is faithfully working for good in those circumstances. And so he says down in verse 24, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Jeremiah is saying, if I have nothing to cheer me, I still have the greatest thing. I have the Lord, the great creator of all things, for whom nothing is impossible. Therefore, verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Because Jeremiah knows the Lord is good, he waits patiently. Because God will bring in all things new mercies that exceed all expectations. He's always faithful. He cannot be anything else. That's who he is. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There's no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changes not. Thy compassions They fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. If you're in the midst of hardship, frustration, pain, confusion, rejection, wait on the Lord. New mercies are coming. Wait on the Lord. He's working. And his faithfulness will bring you everything that you need. One more point on that. His faithfulness to you does not depend on you. His faithfulness to you does not depend on you. Paul in 2 Timothy, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we would endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithful Faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Faithful is who God is, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Often in real estate deals, there are what's called contingencies. If buyer does X, seller will do Y. If seller does X, buyer will do Y. There are no contingencies on God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness depends only on him. If you've been unfaithful, don't stay there. Repent. You can never earn God's faithfulness, but you can repent. And when you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you. Not just of the ones that you deem reasonable to be forgiven, but of all unrighteousness. He will forgive you. 
Don't despair. Return to the Father who is always faithful. Let's conclude. We know. We know that in all things. We know that in all things God works for good. For who? God loves his people. The answer to that question is, for those that love him. God loves his people. He's faithful to his people. He cares about every detail of their lives and he works in all things for their good. A good that is abundantly more than all we can ask or think. That's who he will always be. There's only one more question. Do you love the God who will never fail you? Do you love him? This passage is incredibly encouraging, reassuring, comforting. But it does divide humanity in half. Whose side of this equation are you on? Now is the time to settle that answer. Not later today. Not tomorrow. Not after lunch. One Sunday I literally sat in a pew with a lady at the end of the pew. Service was over. She went out to her car, sat down, and died. You don't know what's going to happen to you after this service. Now is the time to settle the answer to that question. Whose side of the equation are you on? Don't leave here on the wrong side of that holy equation. Draw near to God. His promise is to draw near to you. Trust Christ alone for your salvation, and you will receive eternal life. Confess your sins, and you will be forgiven of every single one of them. And when you do that, Almighty God will work all things together for your good now and forever. Our Heavenly Father tells that for the truth. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that you are gracious. Thank you that you are good. And that you are not those things sometimes, but you are those things all the time. Not when we perhaps believe we deserve them. You start the whole relationship when we don't deserve anything. When we are ungodly, our Savior died for us. Help us to put our trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for our salvation and help us to walk in a faith that knows that you will 100% of the time work all things together for our good because you have called us according to your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.